Hey everyone, Benjamin Block here. Thanks a lot for tuning in. Many of you know me from my column with WFAN in New York, but today I'm really excited to share with you a conversation I recently had with Sports Illustrated's executive editor, John Wertheim. John and I talk about his book, Strokes of Genius, which celebrates the 2008 Wimbledon final between Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. And with it being the 10-year anniversary of that final that many call the greatest match ever played, Tennis Channel is going to run a two-hour documentary Sunday night, July 1st at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And now, without further ado, here's my conversation that I had with John. Hope you enjoy. All right, so it's been 10 years since the Federer and Nadal 2008 Wimbledon final, the one that you so appropriately dubbed the greatest match ever played. It's hard to believe it's been so long, uh, even harder that they're actually still both number one and number two seeds. And, and I think between them, they've won the last six majors, so they're still going strong. But what do you remember about that day, John? I, I guess I remember from that day mostly just kind of the, the whip song. That it was, uh, remember Nadal, four weeks earlier, Nadal had beaten Federer at the French Open, just sort of crushed him. Right. And there was a sense of, boy, if Nadal wins on grass now, we've got a new king in tennis. And Nadal wins the first two sets, and it's looking like, uh, the Roger Federer era may be, uh, maybe reaching its end. Federer then storms back to win the next two sets, and you're thinking, boy, what a defense by Roger Federer and how crushing this must be to Nadal to be so close to winning Wimbledon and not being able to close. And then by the fifth set, it was just sort of whoever wins this, it's a great story, but bigger picture, what an absolutely classic sporting event this is. And these, these two guys who have already had a rivalry have really taken it to another level. Yeah, and and you're right. There was sort of a tipping point. I just remember the mood, and maybe you could set the stage. Like you said, you know, Federer had been dealing, I think, with Samano in 2008 in the early parts of the season. He hadn't won, I think, in three three of the last Grand Slams, and and right, and and Rafa had had just shredded him a month earlier in the French Open. I mean, can you even describe the mood when Federer goes down two sets? And uh, I mean, what was it like there? You know, Federer was, uh, you know, he was, he was 26 years old, and that's about the time when tennis champions uh, tend to decline, or at least that was the old metric. And, boy, a great run for Roger Federer. He's won Wimbledon five straight times. What a great champion. <laughs> and now there's the new king, and uh, he plays on grass as well as, he plays on clay as well as grass, and he's this young kid from Spain, and he's a lefty. And I think there was just almost resignation that, well, that was a great era, the Federer era, but now uh, we we have a new key. And, uh, again, I mean, I think there was always a sense that Federer was this brilliant, talented player. And he, he even alludes to it in the film. But he had to learn to fight, and he had to learn to embrace a rival. And so to see him come back from two sets down and win the next two sets, I think that alone was an unbelievable statement. And, again, by the fifth set, I think there was just a sense of, uh, boy, someone's going to win this and someone's going to lose this. But what a great, great sporting event. And whoever wins and whoever loses, you had the feeling that this rivalry was, you know, had reached its pinnacle. Yeah. Yeah, you did get that feeling, I guess. And to your point, you know, I had a chance to have an early screening of the film, you know, which I know everyone's excited about. It's obviously coming out 
uh, on Sunday, July 1st, 8 p.m. Tennis Channel, right before Wimbledon. So nothing better to get you more excited. But I remember there was one poignant part of the film where Federer says that early on in his career, or just early on as as a tennis player in general, you know, he sought perfection. Um, you know, with all of his strokes, just trying to really emulate what he saw on TV. So I, I guess, you know, after reflecting, it was really uh, a bit of a slap in the face. You're right. People were almost writing, you know, writing his tombstone kind of back then. Yeah, I think, you know, when when we tell the Federer story, we, we always talk about his grace and his talent and the artistry. But I think sometimes we forget it took him a good three, four years until he was able to really solve a puzzle. And there was a lot of frustration. Some of it was every shot to him came with so many different possibilities and opportunities that sometimes he had a hard time picking the right one. He had a temper. Uh, I think he was frustrated that uh, he didn't achieve that, that perfection that you talk about. So that was all part of his evolution. You know, Nadal was one of these, you know, LeBron style talents that, came with a lot of hype, and by, you know, as a teenager, they were already up and running. It was very clear very early how great he was going to be. The first time he ever entered the French Open, he was the favorite, and he won. I know that was better, better a different, uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, this guy never played a Grand Slam tournament before. Everyone said, oh, this, this teenage kid you've never seen, he's going to win this thing, and he did. I mean, can um, you remember hearing something like that, anything similar to that? Because I just remember how... How, how big of a statement that was at the time. Um, you know, it's, it's funny because I I sort of said it jokingly, but it, it, it reminded me of LeBron. I mean, I've got to go outside of tennis. I mean, LeBron <laughs> James is a high school kid, and everyone says, you know, this this guy is uh, this is the king, this is the chosen one, this guy could play in the NBA right now as a 17-year-old and be an all-star, and you just knew that this was a generational talent. That's, that's how it was with Nadal. I mean, yeah, the, the idea today of, of saying, you know, the notion today of looking at tennis and saying, oh, there's a 17-year-old kid and he's going to play Wimbledon for the first time and win, you, you'd be laughed out of the room. It's it's very rare that uh, you have a, a teenager. It wasn't even hype. It was just sort of this certitude of this this guy is the next champion and it's just a question of when and not if. Yeah, really, and and a great comparison, a, a very fair one too, because I mean he lived up to it and more, and I just remember how crazy it sounded at the time, and 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 you know when you were touching about Federer, you know you could easily say that one of his first you know seminal moments or or you know big stages at Wimbledon was when he when he beat Sampras that year, um, you know that's maybe maybe that's when it sort of started to click attitude wise and you know and. uh performance-wise, you know, with the trajectory that his career has gone on since. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, again, this was kind of early center where he beats he beats Pete Sampras at the 2001 Wimbledon, and it's the sense of the torch is passed, and look at this kid with this beautiful game, and he's got the headband, he's got all the strokes, and then it took him two more years till he won his first major. So, again, with, with Federer, the, the talent was, was undeniable. But there was this tension about whether he would figure it all out and make it all work and whether he could be consistent. I mean, the fact that he beat Keith Sampras at Wimbledon, uh, you know, you, you, a lot of people remember that match. But Definitely. people forget, 20, it took him 24 months to uh, finally break through. So um, 
again, the, the Nadal and Federer part of what makes the rivalry what it is is the contrast and the lefty and the righty and heart versus fighting and offense versus defense. But there's also a contrast in how their careers sort of took trajectory. Yeah, and and that was really illustrated very well in the documentary. Uh, there was some, there was you know some amazing foreshadowing that sort of gave some great context to to the story that we're all celebrating and the anniversary. Um, and and obviously you know your book came shortly after the match. Uh, I think it was published in in '09. Uh, when so when did tennis uh, when did Tennis Channel decide to sort of adapt this, if that's the right word? Um, into, you know, into this documentary. And can you talk about the timing of it? Um, yeah, it, w- it was very recent. I mean, usually it takes uh, from the time a, a book gets optioned until the time a film comes out. You, you know, I can, that could be decades. Um, in this case, around the U.S. Open last year, uh, I think Tennis Channel got to thinking, you know, wait a second, it's going to be the 10-year anniversary of this amazing match. And not only that, but better than a dollar still as relevant as ever, how are we going to memorialize this? And hmm. I think I, I don't. I, I think it was our tennis channel president Ken Solomon said, "Well, wait, why don't we use why don't we use the book and build a documentary off of that?" And so uh, this this only came together, you know, less than a year. And wow, that's uh, you know, pe- people who will have done uh, you know ninety minute feature films would. I suspect be surprised by the tight timing, but it's all, uh, you know, it, it, it all worked out. There were some logistical challenges, and, you know, ten, tennis doesn't have home games, so it's not like you, you show up at uh, the, the Golden State Warriors locker room and you know they've got a game that night. Uh, Federer and Nadal are rarely in the same place, but uh, they both they both made time. And, again, I, I think one of the coolest things to me about the whole project was that Federer and Nadal, not as two retired athletes looking back, not as two, you know, 65-year-old guys on the couch reminiscing, but as two athletes who are have as much currency as ever, still in this throws of this rivalry, still won two in the world, still winning majors, that even uh, while they're still so active and so relevant, decided to sit and uh, talk about not just the match, but their relationship. I, I think that says a lot about you know, what kind of character we're talking about with these two guys. It says a lot about them. It says a ton about the state of the game. And and it's um, it's it's really just a, an incredible testament. And you, you mentioned something, I know you said about the locker room, uh, referencing the Golden State Warriors there. You know, when I was reading the book, which, you know, everybody should definitely buy with an absolute page turner, um, I just, I love the details and the descriptions. And it just seemed to me that, you had this unparalleled access to to both camps and at times were in the locker room when they had the rain delays and you just you had such an insight um i mean were you where where exactly were you during all those moments pre-match post-match rain delays everything oh man um i mean that day was crazy because i was also writing this for sports illustrated and it was a, a tight deadline um so i was back and forth in the press room and the locker room and I mean the, uh, the the press room and the media seating at the stadium and you know I mean a lot of that honestly came after the fact and uh, both both camps couldn't have been cooler and 
more gracious trying to help recreate that with me. Um, you know, this was uh, kind of in that sweet spot where it wasn't an as told to, it wasn't an, an authorized sort of ghost written book. Um, mm-hmm. Joe Federer and Nadal didn't, you know, there was no kind of formal relationship, but they both were, uh, they, they both were really cool about sort of, listen, if you want to write this, we're not going to stand in your way. And if you need to have some questions answered, fire away. Um, it was, I, I think that's, fairly unique that you would have two athletes, you know, n- not having, uh, you know, they, they weren't stakeholders. Uh, it was sort of my, my book and not their book, but they were still all very cool and accommodating and trying to help put it together. Yeah, it seemed, it, it, it definitely seemed that way, that you had that right balance of participation without maybe direct participation. Um, so what, I'm curious when... When did you formulate the idea of turning this into a book? I mean, you're watching this epic, epic match, and, and obviously all sorts of thoughts are flying to your mind, but when when were you like, and you were writing it for Sports Illustrated, like you said, but when when were you like, you know what, this could be a great book? Um, the, the, it's a funny story. I, I had a, uh, I was approached by a publishing company about doing a, a book on Roger Federer, I, I guess late in 2007. And he had just won three majors and was this global nice. icon. And, again, Federer's people in his camp basically said, uh, you know, we're not, we're not going to stand in your way. And it's not going to be a biography. But, you know, it's not going to be an autobiography. It's not going to be the Roger Federer's book. But, you know, if you want to do it, knock yourself out. Or we're not going to we're not going to put up any impediments or anything like that. And as it turned out, you know, I talked to Roger's dad and went to Basel and it ended up being – they, they were great. Um, but Federer loses the first major of 2008 at the Australian Open, and I sort of say, yeah, that's that's a pity. I guess he's not going to win the Grand Slam, and that's disappointing. And then he gets just crushed at the uh, French Open that year. I said, yeah, he's, he's 0 for 2 now. That's not how I envision this going. And then he uh, loses those first two sets of the Wimbledon final. And I'm thinking this book project uh, – is toast and <laughs> wins the next two match goes to the fifth set he has this crazy classic match and I, I remember that john mcphee this great great american writer who uh you know has written for the new yorker for decades had done a book called levels of the game that basically used a match to uh talk about arthur ash so that was that was very much the model and i called the publisher and i said you know the, the bad news is better lost and he's now over three uh he, not only is he not winning the Grand Slam this year. He's not even winning two of these. Um, but the good news is, I think I have a way to tell this story. And they basically said, uh, "Give it a shot. Go for it." So um, that's, that's kind of how it came to be. That's very cool. I mean, best best laid plans, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, and so, do you still feel? That, I mean, you've watched a ton of tennis in your day, and you know, and you and you and you talk about it really in, in an excellent way on Tennis Channel. Um, is it still the best match you've ever seen? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, obviously there's, there's no, uh, you know, there, there's no real objective criteria, but you think about everything from the expectation that already had existed. I mean, everybody wanted these two to play when the tournament started. You think about the fact that it was the Wimbledon final. It was the highest stakes match that you could get. Statistically, they both just 
played fantastic tennis, way more winners than errors. They served well. The momentum, the rain, I mean, just you, you put it all together, and uh, I, I I stand by that. Yeah, yeah that's that, the best matchup. Yeah, and and there's little you know, and there's little anecdotes too, like the fact that there was no roof, and so the rain was a factor, and something like that can never be reckoned basically at, at Wimbledon. So, um, yeah, that's that's definitely interesting. What um what Mac would rival would rival that? I mean, is it is it Borg Mac around 1980 Wimbledon or um, what? Or before this became your in your opinion the the greatest match ever played? What what was the the greatest before that? Um, yeah, I, I think that's the one most people go to, uh, the, the Bork McEnroe match. I think there's some women's matches that obviously weren't best of five sets, but, you know, the, the Lindsay Davenport, Venus Williams, 2005 mm, women's yeah. final was a great match. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it is just what you value and what you, I mean, sort of a, a personality test. Um, to me, the fact that there were five sets and it was 6-4, 6-4, Seven six seven six nine seven. So um, it just wasn't there, there get wasn't one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. Nadal was broken once the entire afternoon. I mean, the you just sort of add it all up and you put it all in the blender. And the again, uh, can, can you have a greatest match if the stage isn't great? I mean, I'm sure there were some spectacular, gripping, well played matches on a you know Tuesday night in Hilton Head, but that's different from a Wimbledon final. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a documentary for another day. Yeah, exactly. That's Wimbledon. Uh, that's that Hilton Head Tuesday. But, uh, yeah, I, I think at some level it's one of those sort of what do you, what do you value? Yeah, and but, also, um, I mean, the first, the first point to open up the match, I mean, some people point to that as almost some sort of precursor to what, what eventually happened. I, you know, watching that as the documentary sort of begins and unfolds, um, I, I'd forgotten personally how how amazing that first point was. So. Yeah, it was a bit of a bit of foreshadowing, uh, as, as we say. No, the first point exactly. The first point of the match was like a twenty-stroke rally, and Nadal had some ridiculous uh, lasering forehand. Uh, Just how do you hit that top? Yeah, exactly. That was uh, sign of sign of things to come. Yeah, exactly. Um, actually, real quick, uh, just on that, um, what's your whole? What is your genesis? Um, you know, with with tennis, obviously you have a great love for following it. But did you play? What kind of? What you know? What part of tennis did it serve in your life? Um, you know, I, I played. Uh, you know, played played in high school. Played some junior tournaments as a kid. Uh, but I got to Sports Illustrated and. Uh, Boy, I don't know. In the late '90s, and Frank DeFord said he gave me a few pieces of advice. One of them was to find one sport. You can always be a generalist and do profiles, and but find one sport to really get inside of. It doesn't have to be at the exclusion of everything else. And then he said, "You know, a great sport. I don't know if you have any interest in tennis, but it's it's one on one. It's men. It's women. It's international. It's older and younger and." Everyone's kind of crazy. I said, "Boy, I, yeah, I know tennis. I'm, uh, you know, I was a fan. I played. I, you know, I wasn't uh, didn't have ambitions of being a pro, but you know, I can hit the ball a little, and uh, it was great advice." So. That's a really cool story. I mean, number one to get advice, you know, from such a from such a sports writing legend as as Frank Ford. That's that's amazing. Number one, and, and you and for someone as him, uh, you know, he was a great 
he wrote some great boxing pieces as well, which reminds me, uh, there, you had a line, or I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but from your book, you had a line that alluded to how unique tennis was, and you pointed out that in boxing, you know, as in tennis, in tennis, you know, they exchange rallies to warm up, but in boxing, they don't exactly, you know, exchange knockout blows to the head before warming up, and I just, I thought that was, I thought that was a terrific way of sort of putting putting tennis in its own, you know, in its own right among the one-on-one sports. I mean, just, uh, that stuck out to me, but a tremendous job on, on the book and details like that, so... Um, <laughs> so let's let let's just jump to present day. Um obviously, you know, the ten year anniversary of Federer and Nadal will be celebrated for the next couple of weeks. Um so first of all, what do you think about Serena Williams getting the, the number twenty five seed and, and going through you know, and going through all those seeding discussions leading up? Yeah, I honestly I d I don't have uh terribly strong thoughts. Um, if, if the policy of, of not seeing someone coming from maternity leave is so unfair, the, the players have the right to change that. I think 25 struck me as a little bit low, but, you know, I, I, I get it. Yeah. He's only played fewer than 10 matches in the last 18 months. Ultimately, I think the players and the other, the other players in the field, you know, all, all but one of them would benefit from her being seated. I mean, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to be a seed and have to face Serena Williams right off the bat. Um, and I think we're all just kind of waiting to see what kind of uh, physical shape she's in in terms of this this pectoral muscle injury that she suffered at the French Open. Because you know, she started the French Open, seemed a little rusty. Boy, she's looking. Uh, you know, finally, she's, she's totally understandably, but she looks like a 36 year old woman who gave birth. She does not look like Serena Williams. And then she won her first match, second match. She, she fought a little bit, had a nice comeback. By the third match, she looked like a player who could win the tournament. So I think Serena Williams is a contender every event she enters. And I think she's got a real chance of winning this thing. I, I, I tend to think the the seeding discussion was, a, you know, it's sort of uh, it's, it's maternity, it's Serena Williams, it's Click they haven't, but took I'm on not a sure. Yeah, exactly. And I think that uh, you know, again, the, the players probably ought to get together and change this policy if they think it's unfair. But if if I'm a seated player, I want some protection against having to face Serena Williams early. I, I want her to be seated. So I'm, I'm not quite sure who, apart from the player who was 32 and got bumped out of the seed, apart from that one player. I, I'm not sure who else uh, would would be offended by this. Yeah, no, that's that's a fair point. It'll be interesting to see how it played out, just because you know of the ups and downs she had all in just that one tournament at the French. Um, let's go to Andy Murray. You know, what do you think about what do you think about him unseated, his chances, also not drawing Federer or Nadal, which is big news. Yeah, Andy Murray's coming back from a fairly serious injury, and I wonder if this weren't his home slam if he would be playing. Um, you, again, I think everyone should look at Roger Federer. And he's 36, still going strong, and I don't think Andy Murray's uh, career's in peril or anything like that. He's plenty of time to make a recovery, but 
you know, the, the, a hip injury is serious business, and the idea that he would come back in his first major and three or five sets is only going to demand more durability. Um, I, I would not, uh, I, w- I would not look for Andy Murray in week two, but uh, I would, I would in 2019. Okay. Yeah, I don't think people's expectations are, are going to get too out of control with him, but that's that's definitely uh, an interesting thought. You know what really stuck out to me, and I'm, I'm not alone in this, obviously, but Warinka Mitrov in the first round. I mean, does it get any? <laughs> uh, talk about no warm up, no no ease in. Yeah, it's a, it's a little. I mean, Wawrinka's a little bit in the Andy Murray boat, where uh, he, he's coming off a fairly significant injury. Uh, knee surgery in this case. You know, Pavrinka played in Australia and also played the French Open, but he looked to be at about 70%. I mean, I think this is just kind of getting some matches and getting some match play. Um, unless he's made dramatic physical improvements since the French Open, he just doesn't look like uh, the same player that was, you know, winning majors less than two years ago. Uh, I mean, it's one of those matches that I think uh, – could, could be spectacular. There you know, two, a guy in the top ten now and a guy with three majors playing first round of uh, Wimbledon is great, but I think we'll have to see how Vavrinka pulls up because he looked, uh, he didn't look like a 100% fully recovered player at either Australia or the French Open. Yeah, that's a fair point. It'll be interesting to see if he sort of returns to any kind of his old form. You know, I guess adrenaline can can rear its head uh, whenever and however. Um, you had some thoughts recently in Sports Illustrated about um, uh, Kyrgyz, um, Nick Kyrgyz. So um, what do you what do you expect from him, if anything? Uh, expect the unexpected has become the cliche, and I think it's just, <laughs> you know, he, he, we're, we're running a little bit uh, skin on the, he's a young kid who needs to mature. He's, he's, 23 yeah. now. He's, uh, you know, he's guys in his mid 20s. He's, uh, I mean, when is that going to get old? In the top 10. It's, it's sort of time to, uh, put up some results to match his profile. Do you think a long, do you think a deep run in Wimbledon this year could really sort of, um, maybe bring some believers back? Because I, I feel like that's sort of becoming a little stale, giving him that excuse, like you said. Yeah, exactly. And I think he's fully capable of it. I mean, I think even his biggest detractors uh, don't deny the talent. But there are only so many years you can play the, like, talented kid who needs to grow up card. Um, we've been uh, we've been sort of stuck on this phase for a long time now. Who else do you like that, um, you know, that we're not talking about or people are not talking about in this tournament? Um, that's a good question. I mean, among the men, I really, you, you kind of go down the list and you say, who's, who's beating Roger Federer? Well, Nadal's the second seed, but he hasn't, uh, done much on grass since 2011. Marin Cilic is, is a nice player, but that's who Federer beat last year and beat at the Australian Open Finals. But, you know, two wins on fast court against the same guy. Pretty Dominic easily, too, yeah. Nice play. Yeah, pretty easily, too, exactly. Um... You know, Zverev, who has never even been to a Grand Slam study. Dominic Team is a very nice player, but I'm not sure Grass is his surface of choice. You know, I, I think there's some players. Kevin Anderson's a player to watch. And I think they're sort of dark horses. But honestly, uh, I, I don't see a whole lot of alternative to Roger Federer. 
Yeah, and and um, and Borna, that's not you know Borna's win over Federer. That that doesn't really does that bother you? Does that make you think think twice at all, or, or do you think it makes him think twice at all heading into Wimbledon? No, I mean I think that um, there's just such a difference between best of five and best of three. And, you know, the grass season is so short that uh, a lot of times players are just, you know, they're they're trying out, uh, they're doing a little bit of tinkering, and they're, you know, maybe not getting it 100% because of injuries. I I don't tend to read much into uh, these few grass court tune-ups we have. I mean, uh, a best-of-three match is so different from a best-of-five match, but especially on the grass. That's true. I mean, the way that they just even approach it mentally is, uh, has has got to influence some of the play. Um, well, I mean, finally, you know, is there? I mean, this thing, this, it's kind of a dumb question, I guess, but uh, a Nadal Federer sequel. I mean, does that at all play into the ten-year anniversary or, or nostalgia? You know, doesn't have that much strength. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think, I don't know if it's just the fact that 10 years on, we're still looking at the draw and one guy's on the top and the other guy's on the bottom. It's just remarkable. It's crazy. It's legitimately, it's nuts. Just because, I mean, everybody, my, I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but myself, you know, everybody talked about Nadal, you know, he's a bull in a china shop and his career, as great as it is, is probably gonna just come to a come to a screeching halt. And and it just it, it really hasn't. There's been some speed bumps, you know, with the six and seven month layoffs here and there, but um I'm I'm just flabbergasted that it, that it, that he's still where he is. You know, I know I know I'm not trying to make him forty years old or anything, but it's uh it is remarkable. So. No, I'm I'm totally with you. I mean, we talk about uh, Federer's longevity, and here he is, almost 37. But given the, the way credit. he plays, yeah, given the dog credit for 37, he won he won the French Open a couple weeks ago, looking every bit as unbeatable as he did when he was 19 years old. And uh, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think we looked at how he played and the physical tennis and heavy footing and sort of said this is like one of those NFL running backs that pounds away and is great for three years by the time he's 25 his body's starting to rebel. The fact that Nadal is 32 with that style is still number one in the world is is remarkable. So yeah, that actually raises a good point. What's more impressive Nadal's style at 32 or Federer's style at 36? Which one wins out? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think I think they're both also have gotten very, uh, you know, I think this is this is a, a virtue and not a knock. They've both gotten very strategic about scheduling and, you know, better not playing the clay. And I, I think a time will come when Nadal maybe really reconsiders whether he wants to play on, on grass. So they've both taken steps to preserve themselves. But, uh, no, for, for two very different reasons, their longevity is really impressive. Yeah, no question. And um, do you think we'll ever see them in a final in the U.S. Open? Unless I'm mistaken, that's that's the only one that's never yeah, happened, right. right? They've played multiple finals at all the other majors, and they've never met. Uh, they've come close. They came within a point one year, but right, uh, right. They have. Uh, they've never met in the U.S. Open final. 
personally, I mean, for my own selfishness, I would rather I would rather see that at this stage of both their careers than maybe anything else. I don't know. I might I might be on a lonely island there, but I think that place would be electric. Obviously, you know that us both living in New York, it would, it would be phenomenal. I'm sure. Yeah. Again, we've uh, it's, there's a certain certain irony to it, and they've been at the open. They've been uh, ships passing in the night. Yeah, but we can't be too selfish. They've provided us with absolutely amazing moments, and you captured it in the book, and the documentary just illustrated it and and, and just magnified everything. It's both are, are truly great works. I enjoyed I enjoyed the read. I enjoyed the documentary. I'm going to enjoy Wimbledon, and I appreciate this conversation. This was great. Um, if there is a sequel, then we'll have to we'll have to talk again because that would be amazing. You got it. All right, John. Thanks, thanks for man. the time. Enjoy Wimbledon. Thanks. Good time. Right. Take care. Take care. Bye. All right. My thanks to John Wertheim for me hearing his personal thoughts and memories about such a historic match and getting a chance to relive it through his perspective was pretty amazing and very cool. So don't forget, you can check out Strokes of Genius Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on Tennis Channel. And until next time, this has been Benjamin Block. Thanks for listening.